Welcome to Blockchain Won't Save the World, the podcast that aims to demystify blockchain and exponential technologies with real-world examples for beginners and experts alike. Because blockchain won't save the world. We will. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. Today, we're going deep into the topic of decentralized autonomous organizations with a particular focus on decentralized finance. And when you put DAO and DeFi together, there's only one name that stands out. And I'm joined by Rune Christensen, founder of MakerDAO. Rune, welcome to Blockchain Won't Save the World. Thanks for having me here. That's my pleasure. And in my experience, DAOs are known, but rarely understood in terms of a topic in blockchain. Could you tell us a little bit more about the history of MakerDAO and why are DAOs so disruptive? Yeah. MakerDAO definitely goes way back and really is tied together with the history of blockchain and Ethereum in particular. Uh, so it's a project that was initially started before the Ethereum blockchain even launched. And it was basically me and a number of other people from various blockchain communities that predated Ethereum, but had started to look beyond Bitcoin and look at these more advanced use cases for blockchain. And we then decided that we were going to try to make a really strong blockchain-based system specifically for stable currency because we thought that that was the big thing that was missing from Bitcoin, for instance, right? The volatility meant that although there are so many advantages with blockchain, if you have to, you know, if you're a small business and the only way that you can get these advantages is by accepting really, you know, potentially business-destroying volatility, then it's not actually going to catch on. But if you're able to create all of these advantages in an environment where you also have stability, then you suddenly have a, a recipe for something that can you could actually use the technology to have an impact on the real world. So we built that all the way back in 2015. We really got started. And then we basically spent four years just inventing the technology. And then, um, yeah, the project launched late 2017. And then it, we recently here in, in uh, just at the end of 2019 launched the full multi-platform version of the system. Right now, there's 120 million the DAI stablecoin in circulation. So that's, that's $120 million worth of basically currency that are being used. Particularly in South America, we're really seeing a lot of interest in this project and the unique values that, that the mega protocol and the DAI stablecoin provides. These 120 million of outstanding stablecoins are backed by currently something like $500 million worth of various collateral assets, though primarily the Ethereum token and also but also things like Bitcoin and even uh, US dollars through uh, the USDC stablecoin. And the topic of decentralized autonomous organizations and sort of what, what it is that's so unique about Maker and DeFi, I think you can actually tie that a little bit together with also why it is that our project is uniquely popular in South America, because it goes all the way back to really the, the reason why Bitcoin even exists, right? Which is the, the financial crisis back in 2007, 2008, which created this, this uh, popular backlash to some extent against the global financial system, right? When a lot of people became disillusioned with the banks and the authorities and the regulators and the governments and so on, because they were supposed to protect them, but actually it looked more like they had been just looking out for their own this whole time, right? And so the idea of Bitcoin was to create a system where there's no government, there's no authority, there's no bank, right? There's just code that operates in a completely neutral and unbiased way and provides the same service. And so that's the idea of a decentralized autonomous organization. It's basically 
an organization that has that same concept of being completely unbiased and simply performing a particular task. And in the case of Maker, that is to keep the DAI stablecoin pegged to $1 and also maintaining a secure peer-to-peer lending system that is able to provide the collateral, provide the liquidity for that currency. And ultimately that recipe is, is quite popular if you're a person in a country where the government perhaps isn't so stable or the currency is uh, being manipulated. Because then, you know, you typically tend to be a little bit more wary of, of putting your trust in centralized entities. And then having a decentralized alternative that, um, you know, they have this credible neutrality that comes from being entirely based on code, right? With no company or authority ultimately pulling the strings. Fantastic. And so it's about stability. It's about access to assets. It's about providing an alternative to potentially corrupt or potentially volatile systems. So that's been the start of decentralized finance. Can you give us a view on the state of DeFi at this point in time? You mentioned South America being particularly relevant to you or those countries having the right characteristics where MakerDAO is particularly attractive. Where do you see the maturity of decentralized finance at this point in time? Yeah, so today there is really a, an, an entire ecosystem that goes way beyond just MakerDAO. And what's great is that uh, you could say that Maker really did what we call the icebreaking for this entire ecosystem. So, so Maker was, was the first DeFi project and it really cemented this concept of, of decentralized financial tools built on the blockchain as something that, you know, that had a real use case and that really made sense and then spawned a massive ecosystem of projects trying this in all sorts of different ways. And I think one of the really big you know, success stories that's already come out of DeFi and that's really showing, that's really shining today is composability. So there's just so much innovation in the DeFi space where one project essentially builds on top of another project and then creates a completely new type of solution that gets the advantages of both of those things that it's building on. That's also really showcasing one of the fundamental advantages of the blockchain, which is this ability to collaborate seamlessly and ultimately get access to synergy and network effects and economies of scale. And it's a different paradigm because instead of that just being available to big institutions or companies that are big enough to, to see those benefits for themselves, now it's available to anyone because in DeFi and in blockchain, when you build an application on an open blockchain, you have free access to have your application interact with any of the other applications on the blockchain. It's a very big ecosystem already. So in the Mega Foundation, which is the, you know, the organization I work for that's helping bootstrapping the mega protocol. Uh, we have more than 600 partnerships already with all sorts of projects and startups and protocols um, that are all building on DAI and Maker in some form. But this is actually just, I mean, the, the, these direct partnerships are actually just the tip of the iceberg. And the, the true extent of how much DAI is being used and integrated around the world is actually... Uh, hard to even say because it's just growing so much every single day. One thing is like the, the absolute growth in terms of numbers, which I think is still, I mean, from that perspective, if you look at the total amount of DAI in circulation, right, it's still only 120 million, which isn't actually that much for a monetary system. But when you look at the amount of startups and projects and new ideas and just like the volume of innovation, it's really already something quite special, I think. A trend that's actually happening right now is other projects essentially following the path of Maker in doing decentralized governance. So having this concept of a decentralized autonomous organization where you don't have a single company making the decisions for the protocol for the system, but rather you have a 
massive group of people distributed all around the world who run and control the protocols through what's called governance tokens and then vote for those tokens in order to make decisions in systems that have game theoretic mechanisms to ensure that you can't use these powers, but at the same time, you still have the ability to, to reach consensus on, on new ideas and just like adjusting the parameters of the, of the business model and business logic, for instance. And that's becoming quite popular. So that, there's a bit of a, almost like a new ICO craze, some people are saying, in terms of, of all these governance tokens that are now hitting the market, which is great, of course. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. And I think what you've done is you've you've identified a capability where you can provide transparency, where you can allow a community to take interest or to take a stake in how a particular protocol or how a particular proposition advances. And I think that's what people want. I think generally speaking, that's very attractive. Before we get into the mechanics, because I'm dying to hear more about how it works in detail, who are the target market for DeFi or the work that you're doing with MakerDAO? You mentioned South America. Are we talking about businesses here? Are we talking about individuals? Are we talking about mid-market? Who are the key people that have invested in the work that you're doing? So that's a really, really interesting question when it comes to DeFi, because to some extent, you could say that it's the entire global financial system that from the perspective of someone in DeFi and in blockchain, there are not really that many systems today of the, of the legacy financial system that wouldn't stand to benefit from being upgraded with blockchain in some way, right? To get more transparency, more efficiency, more security, and, and just all of these advantages that exist. And what's also interesting is because the fundamental benefit and value proposition of DeFi and blockchain really is economies of scale, right? And this network effects and synergy. So, so it's kind of this, this unique situation where if you only implement it in one place, you wouldn't really see that much of a benefit. But it's rather when you start really implementing it across many different industries and places and, and use cases, that's when the benefits really start piling up and you know the overall benefit to society will really show itself but there's still of course some very like some specific places where blockchain is very well positioned to essentially you know start out and get traction early before we can really see this like these global network effects begin to show themselves and that's definitely where you know south america and uh, countries with insecure currency or inflation risks that's certainly a place where having access to dollars have just always been absolutely fundamental in Argentina, right? That's crucial for, for everyday life to be able to, to avoid the inflation there. But the problem has been, you know, that you have to use these like old dollar bills that break and can easily be stolen and so on. So suddenly having a digital dollar that you can hold on your phone and you can keep secure and you can, you know, send to anyone in the world, that is just a huge paradigm shift. And it's been proven itself you know, immensely popular. And we're seeing just more and more like totally regular people that don't know about blockchain or care about blockchain, but that still actually are using the DAI stablecoin because an organic economy is essentially starting to, to emerge. And it's actually particularly centered in Buenos Aires. Not only does the DAI stablecoin and DeFi give you access to the stability of the US dollar, but it even allows you to do advanced financial transactions like lending it out. Um, and receiving a return or even putting it into some trading strategy or any number of use cases really that can be that well that already have been programmed in the DeFi ecosystem that's where the you know the universal accessibility you know the inclusiveness of DeFi really shines because 
no matter if you're in the US or the European Union or you know in Africa or South America, you have the same access as everyone else. So you get this complete access to the full range of services and solutions that exist in DeFi, no matter who you are, right? And that's a neutrality of DeFi that hopefully can, can change the current system away from being something that's more benefiting the elite and instead being a little bit more equitable. And the proposition is clear, right? What we're saying is that people have the fundamental need to transact, to invest, to move money, to protect themselves from unstable markets. And in places like the US or certain countries in Europe, those are benefits that we have naturally because that's the environment where we live. We're lucky enough to have been raised or to live in those countries. In other places, that's less the case. And so what we're creating is a digital financial ecosystem to help people with those basic financial needs, which I think is is a fantastic thing to have. Let's get into it. So you started talking about DAI and the stablecoin, about Maker, about voting. Tell us about the mechanics of how the MakerDAO proposition fits together. Yeah, absolutely. I'll try to keep it short. So it's actually essentially a bank balance sheet implemented on a blockchain. It's a two-sided credit market or equivalent to a credit market where you have on one side the people that are seeking stability from the system, that are seeking access to, to money, right, US dollars. And that would be, for instance, an Argentinian trying to escape inflation. So the way that they use the system is that they simply purchase the DAI stablecoin and hold it on their phone, for instance. And then if they have 100 DAI on their phone, that means they have $100 on their phone. They can send it, they can spend it, you know, they can sell it, they can exchange it for something else. So it's really just a currency on your phone, except that it's decentralized and it has all the benefits of the blockchain and gives you all that extra access. But then on the other side of the coin, so to speak, you have the people that are you could say they're providing this ability to the system, but you could also say that they're seeking volatility or even seeking leverage or perhaps credit, you could also call it. So these are users that are typically a lot more advanced and actually quite often it's institutions or hedge funds or large companies that fill this role. And so what, what this kind of user does is they open what's called a vault in the system. And so a vault is essentially a smart contract in the mega protocol that allows the user to deposit collateral into the system and then use that collateral as a source of stability to then generate DAI and actually create new DAI currency into existence that they can then take and, and spend or use in various ways. It's actually quite a simple dynamic that's it's essentially equivalent to um, taking a mortgage with a bank, right? So you you basically sign over the lien on your house to the bank, right? So that the bank now uses your house as collateral. And then on the basis of the collateral, the bank gives you a lot of cash that then sometimes you use that cash to you know, buy the house itself with. In other cases, you're, you're maybe um, refinancing your house or something like that, right? So you take the cash and do something else with it or pay down another loan or something like that. But the important thing is that the bank is able to give you that loan because they have security in the house, right? They know that even if you don't pay back the loan, they're able to, you know, in the worst case scenario, seize the house. And that's what the mega protocol does. It's just entirely implemented in code rather than the legal system. So it basically lets people put in Bitcoin or Ethereum or a number of other assets. And then uh, right now, most of the time, it requires a collateralization ratio. So basically like a loan to value of at least 66% right now. So and, and most of the time, people actually collateralize beyond that, right? So you often see people doing something like 
putting in, let's say, $200 worth of Bitcoin and then borrowing 100 DAI. And then they might take that 100 DAI and actually buy even more Bitcoin. And that's a simple way to use the protocol to access leverage, for instance. But there's also been stories about people you know, buying a car with um, the DAI that they generate from Maker or refinance their, financing their mortgage, even in the most uh, exotic example, I think. And so what's interesting is that these two sides basically work you know, in tandem, right? So, so you have the people that seek stability then that hold the DAI currency and they're essentially providing the capital that the protocol then distributes out to those that are seeking leverage or seeking credit and are putting collateral into the system. And so from that perspective, it's quite similar to peer-to-peer lending. The main difference is just that it's all based on having a fungible, stable digital currency. So there's a lot more efficiency and less friction in the system. There's, of course, a lot more nuance to it, but that's how the, the basic protocol functions. Uh, however, on top of that, you then also have the entire system of decentralized governance. Because when, when you have a two-side, two-sided market like this, right, with people depositing value into the system by buying the DAI stablecoin, or people borrowing value from the system by depositing collateralizing assets, you really need to make sure that it remains solvent and that it remains liquid and that you don't, for instance, um, concentrate too much risk in a particular type of asset and then potentially see a situation where the stable coin that is supposed to provide stability, it would be a big problem if that became insolvent, right? That's essentially the main promise that the system attempts to make is that it will do everything in its power to keep DAI stable and keep it properly collateralized. And that's the role of the decentralized governance. So this is where uh, the third token of the system, or like the third type of, of user in the system plays its part, which is the MKR holder. And so MKR is a, is a governance token, like I was discussing earlier, that where you basically have a token that, that gives you voting rights over the protocol. And MKR holders then also have exposure to both the performance of the protocol in good times when things are going well and it, it has a positive cash flow, but even more crucially, if the MKR holders make the wrong decisions with their power and then vote for something that actually introduces too much risk to the system, they may actually get diluted. So they may um, have to step in and essentially put their money where their mouth is if they make a bad decision and there's too much risk in the system and it suffers a loss of a result. That loss is then not passed on to the die holders, but rather passed on to the decentralized governance. And that's really important because that's how we try to achieve you know, a solution to the principal agent problem. So rather than having the, the money managers taking too much risk and, you know, pocketing the bonuses, we have a dynamic where the people who control the system also are on the hook for any potential losses that, that happen and basically are completely underwriting the stability of the system. That's utterly fascinating. And there's a couple of immediate questions that come out of it. I'm going to start with voting as the first question. So so a big part of the decision making on the platform is driven by voting. Do you have any considerations or concerns like you would in the real world with corporate voting or with political voting in terms of voter turnout or in terms of having sufficient voters to make those decisions? How does that play out in practice? Yeah, so that's really been one of the main concerns as well, the main focus of the entire project to try to sort of try to crack the nut on how do you do decentralized governance and how do you do it in a way where it doesn't just devolve into politics or populism or something like that. And uh, when we were thinking about how to initially distribute the governance token and, and sort of seed the community and really like try to 
to set the stage for how people are supposed to behave in this uh, environment of decentralized governance. What we in the, in the foundation, right, like those of us that basically bootstrap the system, what we realized was a really good model for this was actually the scientific community, specifically the process of scientific consensus, right, where rather than you know, voting and governance and decision-making being this polarizing thing where you're trying to, it's kind of like a popularity contest where you're sort of like a, playing a game of talk of war, right, to see who gets the upper hand and who gets to make a decision that benefits them. Instead, the entire frame of the like framework of the decision-making process is around taking decisions that objectively provide a benefit to the core goals of the project, which is providing stability to the end users, you know, keeping the system safe in the long term, and generally just like trying to achieve the goals of, of the system beyond just let's say short-term profits or passing out benefits to, to particular interests. You know, the way this is implemented is by going beyond just voting, right? So voting is actually a small part of the governance process. And there's kind of like other aspects to it, both before the voting and even after the voting, you could say. So there's both this element, uh, and this is really crucial and something people very often overlook, but there's the element of how do you even construct the proposals in the first place that are going to be voted on? Um, because that process is actually perhaps even more important than the voting itself. And that's where we have actually spent most of the effort on trying to build up the system. So there's an extremely vibrant community uh, in Maker of people who participate specifically on the Maker forum. So anyone can actually go and have a look. It's simply on, on forum.maker.com. That's the, the community governance forum where it's completely open for anyone to participate. And that is essentially where all of the decisions are made. So it's all done through these um, you know, online written debates where people write ideas and proposals and suggestions and then constantly debated uh, you know, in a highly moderated environment, right, where the focus is on you know, objective scientific discussion as much as possible. And then based on the outcome of these conversations, things are then put up for a vote if it looks clear that it's getting momentum and there is... The, the sufficient discussion has been had to make sure that they, this isn't some super contentious thing, but rather something that there's clear benefits to doing. That's when the community then puts it up for an actual vote. And then the voting itself is more of a ratification than, than necessarily this more contentious process. I mean, sometimes it ends up being, you know, a big showdown between two different ideas, but more often than not, it's more of like just simply ratifying the ideas that have already been completely discussed to their natural endpoint and basically like a, a strong consensus for the conclusion is already formed. The idea is then also that this should hopefully, as the ecosystem matures, provide a basis for just more sound decision making, especially in terms of things like risk assessment and setting rates and, and these kind of things where being right is extremely important when it comes to efficiency. Uh, and the more that you're able to tap into the knowledge of a very large group of people, rather than, you know, in, I mean, I would, I would contrast that to the banking system, where typically it's a much smaller group of people that sit with this knowledge and sit with this decision making, of, for instance, who we're going to extend credit to and what, what's the rate going to be and so on. In Maker, that question is open to everyone. And so everyone gets to contribute in this much more open collaboration and the, the idea is that the outcome should then be superior because there simply is more knowledge and more data to base it on. 
Got you. And it's a really interesting tension between the comparison of a small number of lending officers who are financially trained and regulated and who've been performing their roles for, you know, in some cases, decades versus the wisdom of the crowd and the collaborative knowledge, the collaborative discussion leading into specific votes or specific guidance, which I think is really interesting. And the contrast is clear. I wonder if we can double click on a specific example, because I know that very recently one of the topics of voting is potentially really transformative for MakerDAO as a platform, and that's around the use of real-world collateral. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so this is really where I would say things are starting to get real you know, for DeFi and for the Maker Protocol, because like I said earlier, right, the goal of the entire project when we created it was that we wanted to try to use the amazing potential of blockchain technology and then apply it in some form that would actually be able to create value for the real world. So not just have it be about speculation and technology for technology's sake, but actually see how could we use this technology to provide benefits for, for real people, right? And, and there's already example, the example of uh, people in South America and other countries using it to um, escape currency manipulation or inflation. And potentially even you know, greater use case is also just the allocation of capital to the places where right now the current financial system is failing, or at least not being very efficient. And to get there, that's where the mega protocol will need to, to start including real world assets as collateral. So to give an example of what that would actually look like, I mean, it's actually already happening now. So, so maybe the most obvious example is the rework level that's already in the system, which is the US dollar in the form of a, a fiat-backed stablecoin. So basically a cryptocurrency that uses US dollar as its collateral and then just creates a, like a one-to-one -one token that is used in the blockchain. And they can be used in the maker protocol. And that's, that's great for, for maker because that's just the source of stability and diversification of the underlying level. But where things get a little bit more exciting is when you can, you, you know, you can use this to funnel credit to places where it wouldn't normally be available. So two of the projects that are furthest along, like two examples that are, that are the closest to becoming reality are tokenized real-world assets that have been proposed as collateral to the community. So they're basically tokenized securities, so tokenized, you know, tokenized assets that exist on the Ethereum blockchain today. So they're already operational, they're already working, and they're already serving these real-world businesses. And then they're they've been proposed to the maker governance community for inclusion as collateral. And you can actually watch this in real time uh, on the maker forum, right? So right now the maker community is debating you know, how to actually practically include these as collateral in the system and how to do it securely, both from a risk perspective, but also from a regulatory perspective and even from a technical perspective. To uh, dive in a little bit on, on what these assets are actually doing, so there's two of them. So the first one is called Console Freight, and that's basically a project that provides trade finance. So it's a, you could explain this, you could think of it as a, as a revolver for trade finance that has been modified slightly so, so it fits better with the tokenized format and specifically the maker protocol. And ultimately then it has been transformed into a token that could then be plugged into the maker protocol and then by maker providing what we call risk parameters, but basically providing a line of credit to that token this company, Console Freight, would then be able to access that line of credit when they are out financing the invoices in their trade finance revolver. And so the outcome of that should be that trade finance will get cheaper for the customers of Console Freight. And Console Freight you know, will be able to um, you know, scale their, their operations and even like take lower fees and so on, right? And, and 
and focus more on scalability and better service for their customers. And another example that I think is really interesting because it's just very exotic and it really showcases, like it showcases the potential of blockchain in making up completely new markets that just don't exist at all today. And so that's uh, the project called Paper Chain, which is the second project that's also currently being debated for inclusion as collateral in the Mega Protocol. And what Paper Chain is doing is it's tokenizing royalties, uh, mainly on Spotify, but also other, other music distribution apps. So it basically allows independent artists a way to finance their future work based on, on uh, you know, a claim on the future income of the art they've already released today, for instance, on Spotify, right? So if they're earning some money on Spotify and they want to go and, and uh, maybe invest in creating a new album or something, they're able to access the, the full value of those Spotify royalties and use those as collateral for a loan that they can then use to finance their new project. And I think that's really cool because today it's, you know, those like financial services are only really available to, you know, to artists if they're in the really big leagues and it sort of falls into a particular box where you have to, you know, completely follow the, the rules and, the, you know, do whatever the big publisher says. And so I think it's just really amazing that you can actually have something as something as that, that feels as, as sort of immaterial as blockchain and decentralized finance potentially be a driver of, you know, enabling independent artists to create more, more art, right? And I just think that's really amazing that this is an example of how close we are to the point where DeFi, you know, would actually be doing these kind of things and, and providing this kind of benefit in the real world. And it's really interesting because it's starting to step into the world of traditional lending or business to business or areas where this is not just people holding crypto, creating novel uses for lending or moving capital around. This is actually impacting or funding real world business. What more is required in your view in terms of getting enterprises, governments, financial services institutions to engage with this platform and to scale it further? Yeah, so like I said in the beginning, I really think that the eventual I guess you could say addressable market or like potential use case for DeFi and Maker really is almost the entire economy and the entire current financial system. So the big question is really, how do we get there? Like what, how do we take a series of steps so that it becomes possible to, to do this big reform and transformation of the financial system into something that uses the next generation of technology? Considering that we are at the point now where the first steps are being taken towards doing things like connecting completely decentralized financial protocol like Maker to trade finance, which is the case with the, the console freight example I was talking about. I think that we're already quite well on the way. Basically, what's needed next is mainly just doing more of the same, right? Onboarding more assets, proving in the real world that this can be done and that it's very efficient and it's very secure and, you know, it provides access to new opportunities and new places to finance and, and sort of like able, like the ability to, to provide financing to users and businesses that currently don't have easy access. And then as that pie keeps growing and, and there is this proof of real profits, right, and proof of real efficiency, I think that will only further increase the attention that the space is getting and, you know, get us toward the point where all major businesses will start thinking about things like, okay, maybe we should really, you know, start thinking seriously about putting blockchain into our entire supply chain. And maybe we should start thinking about using, you know, stablecoin and blockchain-based 
trade finance or international transactions for supply chain. And I actually think that's a, you know, that's a good segue into talking about trade finance specifically because trade finance is in many ways really what um, a lot of people has identified as the sweet spot for you know, the first case where you will really see DeFi and blockchain starting to, to interact with the real economy at scale. Um, it has a lot of unique characteristics that just make it very suitable as, for instance, collateral in the mega ecosystem. I hear you. And there's an analogy here between peer-to-peer lending, I think, because whatever it was, 10 years ago, eight years ago, there was a big movement or a trend towards saying that if we try and collapse the financial system and create access between people or peers to get access to capital, then we'll open up an entire new market. And you know the traditional overinflated profit-seeking financial lending system will at least open up a fair share, certainly not collapse. But we didn't see that. And I suspect it was still low single-digit percentages of lending comes from the peer-to-peer sources because the requirement to make it happen was the existing financial system. You still needed banks and technology to intermediate it. And there was less in terms of real financial gain for those participating or lending in the system to benefit much beyond what they could do elsewhere. In this case, your on-ramp is blockchain or tokenized collateral. So the more we get access to different types of tokenized collateral, the more we can benefit from the transparency, the automation, and the ability to move that capital around in an alternative financial system that is more transparent, clearer, based in code. And you could see a proliferation of the concepts that you're describing with MakerDAO. So I think, like you say, it's more of the same, but we're on the right path. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I really think that what needs to be understood in order to like really get why this technology is so, has so much potential is that if you extrapolate it and you start thinking about what it looks like at scale and what it looks like at say, global saturation, there's a lot of indications that it is just strictly superior to the current way of, of doing finance. You know, the number one example to talk about is like just the concept of interoperability and network effect and synergy and liquidity even, and, and how crucial that is and sort of how much that it really is the backbone of, of why finance is so powerful. And that's the one thing that blockchain does better than anything else, right? Because, uh, and I, I've actually spoken to some central bankers about this. It's quite interesting. So I spoke to uh, so one of the top uh, central bankers in, on the, in the People's Bank of China. So we were discussing um, central bank digital currencies and Libra and basically this idea of, you know, these big companies and big central banks trying to make their own currency. And then that, you know, in the contrast of something like Maker, which is a completely neutral system, right, for a completely neutral currency. So the point that she made to me when she understood what it is we were doing was that this type of neutral system is probably going to be more enticing for third parties, right? So for basically countries that are not making their own central bank digital currency, for instance, that are maybe not big enough or just don't want to do it. Um, because if you're some third party country, right? Let's say a country in South America or Southeast Asia, if you're going to rely on, let's say, Libra for the future of money, then the problem is you're still to some extent saying that, okay, this is an American company and this is Facebook essentially, um, or the Libra Association. And ultimately I'm going to, I'm, I'm potentially going to give up some of my sovereignty in plugging into the system and utilizing this for, for my financial system. So it's not super appealing when you have the choice to simply stay with the current paradigm. 
even if it's not as efficient, because it just doesn't feel nice to sort of give up your financial sovereignty to the extent that you would with a, a, something like a centralized currency, right, controlled by a single company or a single central bank. And that's where a neutral platform is completely different, right? Because in a neutral platform, no one's in charge. No one has the upper hand or has the back door, you know, has the final authority. Everybody instead are in charge, right, together and access the system and access the protocol on equal terms. And that is really the case across all of DeFi. And I think that when you really think about those things at, at massive scale, that's ultimately how I think companies of the future and even governments in the future will prefer to organize themselves. It's a lot more appealing to have an equitable system where you know for sure that you're going to be treated fairly. There's an immediate tension there between equitability and accountability. And I wonder if this is something you've spent a lot of time thinking about is the link between having a group or a collective make decisions on behalf of what is essentially a financial system versus at law or in dispute, there needing to be somebody who can be sued. How does that work in practice? Yeah, so for the mega protocol, for instance, there's still going to be many parts of the system that ultimately interact with the real world, especially in the context of having real world collateral backing a stablecoin, or also things like having you know, wallets or exchanges or even potentially banks using the stablecoin in some fashion. Ultimately, a, a DAO itself, like a, you know, a piece of code hosted on a blockchain, is never able to have like a legal persona. Like you simply cannot sue a DAO. Like you may be able to you know, sue people that, have, that uh, are part of participating in it or you know, have some collateral in it or something like that. But it's always just going to be a piece of it, not really the DAO itself. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it can't properly integrate with the real world or that it can follow regulation and so on. It simply means that if you are someone who is participating in the system, so let's say you are you know, a wallet or an exchange or a bank, um, you just have to make sure that when you interact with the DAO and you've used, let's say, the DAI stablecoin, for instance, or you're generating DAI with some real world collateral, you still have to you know, follow all the laws and fully comply with financial regulation, just like in every other case. There's a challenge in harmonizing and sort of reconciling this new innovative world of blockchain and DeFi and just all the complexity of that. It can, you know, it's, it's definitely a big challenge to figure out just how exactly that maps onto, you know, both the existing financial regulation, but then also some of the new regulation that's coming that's trying to be more specific to blockchain. Um, but ultimately, based on what we know in the, in the Maker Foundation, sort of the you know, both the, the conversations we've had with regulators and politicians and central bankers and, and also just like looking at, you know, really analyzing the structure of and really the spirit of the law in many of the world's um, top jurisdictions. There is actually a very good possibility for connecting the two and really creating, uh, creating solutions that ultimately are able to both exist in the blockchain world, but not run afoul of laws and still fully comply with all the requirements for things like, you know, that could be securities regulation, for instance, if you're trying to use the security as collateral in the maker system. Um, and actually what's quite interesting is that not only is it possible, but in many cases it might actually be a superior way of doing it. You know, and that comes back to the, just like the inherent advantages of blockchain, right? So things like having programmable assets is actually pretty useful if you're trying to guarantee people are complying with KYC and AML laws because then you can simply program those into the token itself. 
you know, the same goes for a, a whole range of other things that you need to be able to do if you're operating in a regulated space. You can really program that regulation into the assets and into the systems themselves. And then you can even make them, you know, you can make all of that transparently available to the regulators so they can even, you know, see you following the regulation and complying in real time. And I wonder, as you progress your discussions with central banks or regulators or enterprises, do you foresee having a central banker or a government or a large company as part of the staking and voting community on the MakerDAO platform? Or is that already happening today? I don't think that there's any governments participating today, but I have actually made that case to the, you know, at an informal meeting at the Federal Reserve. So obviously it's, you know, it's not something we would expect them to do in the short run at all, right? But the idea was to show that, look, this is a, this is a monetary system, but that doesn't mean that it's like taking away your monetary sovereignty, right? In fact, it's, a, it's an avenue, even for something like the Federal Reserve, to, um, to actually gain greater control and greater insights into global monetary policy and, and uh, monetary flows, right? Um, and I think that also comes back to this, this idea of a neutral you know, a neutral common ground where everybody can participate because something like the Maker Protocol would be the ideal place to have all the world's top central banks actually work together to set global rates, for instance, and set global monetary policy and, you know, principles for, for risk management because they don't have to, they don't have to sort of yield to each other, right? It would actually be an equal playing field where the fundamental neutrality and, and unbiased nature of the protocol means that they all, you know, they all get to participate knowing that they're not giving a special advantage to anyone else in the system. That's really interesting. I suppose it would also reduce on the requirement to go to flights and go to attend large meetings in UN headquarters or anything like that, or the IMF. And also, you've got to make the assumption that those parties who are involved in that want equity or want fairness. And oftentimes with the existing systems or incumbents, that's not always the case. But it's fascinating. And I'm really interested that you took that to the Fed. And fingers crossed we see some response on that soon. I want to ask, have there been any specific challenges or any really crunchy problems you've been dealing with? Obviously, DAOs and other examples or other iterations of DAOs have had some challenges in the past. What are the ones that you've, I don't want to say struggled with, but focused on in the last couple of years? What are some of the learnings that you'd want to share with other people? The best examples are probably the crashes that um, the Mega Protocols has been through. Because when it comes to, to, to um, blockchain-based stable coins, you know, that ultimately are backed by collateral, and that's how they keep their solvency and keep the value, then the, the one thing you really fear a lot is that this collateral is crashing, right? And it's losing its value because that could put the, the stability of the stable coin, you know, in jeopardy. And so what's interesting in, is that when we launched the DAI stablecoin, the first version of the DAI stablecoin in late 2017, we were lucky enough you could say, to, to launch it right at the, literally at the top of the market. So we launched it and it was, it was initially only using the Ethereum token as collateral. And it just happened to be launched right at the, you know, the all-time high for the Ethereum token's price. And the price just fell from then on. On one hand, that's, I mean, so I, I was saying that ironically that it was a good timing, of course, because that's actually not really what you want. You don't really want a collateral type that's, that's falling a lot, right, when you're trying to keep a currency stable. I mean, there was a lot of worry about that and how that would impact the system. But what was interesting to see was that actually, even though there was a major crash following this, um, you know, the launch of the system, 
And actually, Ethereum crashed with something like 95% over the following six months. And so that was really a significant loss of value. But because the crash was not all in one go, so it wasn't an instant crash from one day to another, it was really spread out over a longer time period. It actually simply served to like prove the, the robustness of the system because the protocol is designed to, to handle crashes, right? It's designed to automatically uh, liquidate collateral positions if they become too risky. Actually, you know, in the same way that um, a bank might have to um, foreclose on your house if you're no longer able to pay back your loan or if the value of the house gets too low, right? That logic is built into the, the code of the mega protocol. And uh, so it was, it was kind of like a trial by fire to um, launch a system and then immediately have that functionality be put to the test and see if it was going to work. Um, but luckily it did work really well. So even though the system launched in the worst possible conditions, it was actually still able to grow and more importantly, able to keep the DAI stablecoin completely you know, secure. And that, I mean, and I guess that was actually in the end quite a good start because then that had really proven the robustness of the system and then saw it become very popular and very trusted after it had already been through this big test. But then this year, so about, you know, so we launched the second version of the system called multi-collateral DAI. So basically the final version of the code and of the protocol that was, that enabled the community to begin scaling the collateral assets beyond just Ethereum. Um, and so that was launched in late 2019. And what that meant is we pretty much hit the top of the market again, right? Because then now in, in 2020, we've seen the massive COVID crash, which also had a really significant impact on the crypto markets. And actually this time, the impact was so severe that it, a lot of the crash happened all in one day. So just within a few hours, rather than spread across you know, many months. And uh, that means that uh, things actually started getting very stressed for the system. So it actually, it, it did uh, sort of like push past some of the, the mega protocol defenses when it comes to trying to properly liquidate the assets. There were basically issues with selling so much of the collateral that had to be liquidated on the day of the crash. And ultimately what that actually resulted in was a huge loss on the protocol. So the protocol ended up losing something like $5 million worth of collateral that basically was you know, that was missing from the system and not there to, to back the solvency of the DAI stablecoin. So it created a condition where the DAI stablecoin wasn't fully backed by collateral anymore. Luckily, the system is also designed for that, right? So of course, they, one of the, the core principles of the Maker Protocol is that you can't remove risks. So there's always going to be times where you have massive losses in the system. And you can't eliminate that risk. It's always going to be possible for it to happen. So instead, you have to be able to it's basically overcome it, right? So you have to be able to absorb the loss and then ultimately try to um, mitigate it by diversifying and making sure that the loss isn't so big that you can't, you know, you can't simply absorb it. And I was actually also talking about this mechanism earlier that the way that the protocol absorbs these kind of losses is by diluting the MPR token. So basically the mega protocol says, well, it's the MPR holders who set the rules. They're the one who decided how much risk to take. And if they made the wrong call and they decided to take on too much risk, and then you have something like a, you know, a big crash like this that happened, then they have to basically be in the hook for the loss. So ultimately the protocol then fully automatically, right? So it's completely programmed into the, the code of the system. And it's, it's, a, it's a behavior that can't even be changed because it's so fundamental for the, for the trust in the system that this works as intended, right? So the system actually generated more of the MPR tokens and then sold them off in auctions 
And so basically autonomously raised funds from the market to recapitalize itself without, you know, the involvement of any, you know, it wasn't like an investment bank doing it or a regulator, you know, overseeing it or something like that. It was simply the code of the system autonomously doing this kind of recapitalization. I mean, even though it was a big loss for the system and it was, a, it was just terrible in general across, I guess, global markets and the global economy, and, but also especially the crypto markets. And what was great about it is that it, first of all, showed that this aspect of the system worked as intended. So that's really important, right? Because now we know it's also going to work in the future if something similar happens again. But also what it did was it really finally made it clear to the governance community that, that own the MKR token and are, that are really supposed to be the ones who, who run the system and you know, govern it correctly and keep it stable and keep it secure. And they were essentially like jolted into action by this, right? Because suddenly it became absolutely clear to them that if they don't make the right decisions, if they're not proactive in order to keep the system resilient, even to extreme events like this, they may actually suffer you know, losses and they may even see their holdings get diluted. What happened following the event was this incredible explosion in activity in the governance community where the community sprung into action in terms of onboarding new collateral to better diversify the portfolio, reconsidering different parameters in the system to make them more secure and more resistant to events like this. Uh, and also just generally like starting plans around how to, to really begin fully taking charge of the system, right? And, and actually taking over the full responsibility from the Maker Foundation, which is the, the organization that I work for that ultimately exists to bootstrap the protocol, but also is designed to eventually disappear and, and completely step away so that it can be the community itself that um, is fully in charge of the system. Feels like you've covered a lot of hard learnings in a very short period of time and to launch right at the top of the market. But as you said, it's proven the value or it's proven the protocol can survive and can progress despite volatile times, which is what it's there to do. And in steady state, you know, hopefully those learnings are put to good use. I wonder, as you look forward, are there other areas outside of DeFi where you see strong applications for DAOs? The ability to have the community open, transparent, equitable. Where else do you see that DAOs are going to take place? I definitely expect that it will become will probably take a lot of time, but eventually it's a principle that will be applied to governments, I believe, because I don't, I can't imagine, a, you know, a use case where it is more relevant to get greater transparency and greater efficiency and, you know, a better ability to like track corruption and just like oversee what's actually happening and especially do that in a decentralized manner, right? Where it's not, you know, the police policing itself, right? Or the, the governments deciding who, who are going to oversee whether they're doing the job right. But where you actually can let the people see what's happening, let's say with their tax dollars, right? And, uh, and, and I think the benefit of that could be incredibly huge because everybody knows just how inefficient governments are, right? Even in the Western world, right? Governments are just incredibly inefficient because that's just, it's a natural consequence of bureaucracy, right? It's always going to be inefficient when you have tons of people in hundreds of offices, you know, with endless amounts of paper and emails and, you know, letters and all of these things like making up what is essentially a system that could at least have some of its aspects just being represented in code. And, and if you do that, I mean, if you take a complex system and that's the same as what makers do, right? You take this very complicated, opaque, you know, ultimately based on old 
principles and old technology like a bank and you apply you reduce it to a piece of code and you really like optimize that piece of code as much as possible right just make it as efficient as direct as possible you're going to see a lot of savings and also just like better outcomes in terms of transparency and fairness and security and uh, i think that certainly also can be applied to the, the concept of the bank and i think even you know potentially also things like the legal system and also another thing to consider on this topic is that the benefits of blockchain is different depending on uh, on in what what kind of, of you know country or economy you're in if you look at the western world like i said there's certainly corruption and inefficiency and so on in government and the financial system but if you go to a place like you know south america for instance it's just even more extreme just how inefficient these systems can be and just how much opportunity for corruption and negligence and loss and so on uh, so applying blockchain in these places is going to be just a complete paradigm shift and that's also why i think that like i was talking about earlier right that this is where initially there will be a lot of growth coming out of blockchain i think in just like like closing the gap between the developed world and the kind of financial systems and, and efficiency that exists there and then the developing world and, and how uh, basically the problems that they can currently have with their financial systems and also with their governments. And as you guys move forward at MakerDAO and Maker Foundation, what are you looking for in terms of engagement and help? How can the business community, how can governments, how can individuals engage with you and what more help do you need? Yeah, so I mean, currently um, we definitely are really focusing on the whole regulation aspect, right? So we're focusing on what we call icebreaking, kind of like taking the first steps towards reconciling, you know, the nature of blockchain and DeFi with the nature of regulation and securities and real world assets and so on. So we, we just really love talking to regulators and politicians and we spend a lot of energy on doing that all the time, you know, across you know, the major jurisdictions, especially, especially the US and Europe, of course, but really also in many other countries, like Singapore is actually a, a great place also for, you know, where the, where the regulators and the government is quite uh, forward looking. But I think in terms of, of, you know, the wider business community and sort of the wider world, what we really need from them, I think right now it's mostly just patience or like like allowing the, the, the ecosystem to continue to develop and not just discredit it or like um, discard it in its current state because it's, it's still very early, right? It's not really mature um, because this, this link between the blockchain and the, finance, and the financial system in the real world still hasn't really been established that well. And without that connection, there, the real opportunities can't yet be seen. But once that connection is in place, that's when I think it's uh, it's important to be ready and it's important to to take advantage of the you know of the benefits that will come when you apply you know the greater efficiency, transparency, and security of the blockchain onto the the real economy. Thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. It's been a fascinating journey, and the potential of MakerDAO and the Maker Foundation is significant. And I'm really looking forward to seeing more of the potential as you start seeing those blockchain collateralized assets flowing through, as you start seeing more enterprises and more governments engaging with the proposition. As we close, how can guys find out more about you, more about MakerDAO, and what else have you got going on in your life? Yeah, so you can, uh, we have the forums, so forum.makerdao.com, which is the place where you can go and have a look at the governance process. But maybe that's a little bit... Um, 
you know, deep. So if you're really just looking to get a, an overview of it, you can just go to makeit.com, like our, our um, homepage essentially, and read about the project. You can follow us on Twitter, which is uh, at MakerDAO. Yeah, I think those, I think basically the website and Twitter is really the, the right place to start if you want to just learn about the project. And yeah, I mean, personally, I don't really do that much other than uh, working on blockchain and then taking care of my family. Uh, that's, that's already pretty much two full-time jobs. In general, I'm, very, you know, I'm just very excited about the, the possibility of, you know, of technology, not just blockchain, but even just like other, you know, all the other emerging technologies. Things like AI, for instance, um, and even virtual reality is also something I'm, I'm very interested in. And how actually I think a lot of this next generation of technologies to some extent converging um, and will all be really crucial in, in just shaping the future economy and helping global civilization overcome you know, the massive challenges that are, that are on the horizon. Rune, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for doing your part to help progress the revolution. It's been fascinating hearing the learnings and I wish you every success going forwards. And thanks again for joining the show. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast. All opinions here expressed are those of myself and my guests. If you're looking for more, you can follow me on LinkedIn for more blockchain-related content. And until next time, stay safe out there.